Hello and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Adrian Whip is a passionate and driven photographer who has chosen to pursue more rare, challenging, and unconventional ways of making images. He is probably best known for his family heirloom level of portrait making in the form of tintypes that he captures in his custom mobile photo studio at the back of the French restaurant Justine's Brasserie here in Austin. When not doing that, he is full-on pursuing the creation of his own version of stereo photography, manifest soon in something called the Daydream Society. What I see is an inherent fascination and generosity in what he creates and shares that is really intriguing and inspiring. I encourage you to tune in and keep an eye on what he's up to. If you make it over to have your tintype made, which I highly recommend, make sure to let Adrian know you heard the podcast. And definitely check out the beautiful work on his website, adrianwhip.com. And be sure to specifically check out the Daydream Society and sign up to get email updates. Please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Mr. Adrian Whip. Hey, Adrian, thanks for being on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's been a while. I've been an admirer of your work. Um, I'm sure anyone in Austin might know you from your tintype business that's at Justine's. That's mainly how I I met you. Mm-hmm. But in looking at your website and kind of exploring everything else you're doing, it's like, wow, there's so much more depth to you as a photographer than just the tintype guy, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I was it's, really impressed. It's multifaceted. I'm definitely obsessed with photography on different levels. Yeah. Um, I'm obsessed with deconstructing photography as well and kind of getting to the root of what it is and why it's an art form. Um, mm. That really intrigues me because it's a very strange medium that um, kind of locks you into a certain path. If you pick up a camera, you're picking up a tool, you're picking up a piece of technology that in some respects uh, constrains you. You can yeah. only do certain things with it which is something I really enjoy about it. But then I have these bigger questions about what does that mean for the work that's being produced? If you and I have the same camera, we can produce different work, but the way we're seeing the world is largely constrained by that technology. So you look at lenses, for example, 
it's receiving input from the world and it's portraying it in a certain way. Yeah. It's not like painting where you can portray the world without the rules of perspective, for example, uh, or you can bend the rules of perspective. You can't do that in photography, or at least it's very difficult to do that in yeah. photography. Um, you look at a painting like a Picasso or something where he's looking from multiple different angles at the same subject and he's including time into that and he's including you know, this sort of aperspectival view where he's looking all around an object. It's really hard to do that in photography. It can yeah. be done, but those are the kind of things that really interest me, breaking it free of the constraints of, of, of its technological nature, I guess. Yeah. Well, there's a word that you used, which is a word that's very related to photography, fix or fixed, right. that you use on your website quite a bit. And it's interesting that you talk about like kind of the idea of fixing a moment but then you also seem to kind of want to explore projects that can't fix a moment like your mm -hmm. cathedral of light let's say which mm -hmm. is like a moving present moment kind of experience mm -hmm. yeah i think that's really an interesting kind of a dichotomy it's unfixable in the sense that um it's a camera it's a photographic work um and for those that don't know it's um it's basically a camera obscura so it's a room with a lens on it big aerial surveillance lens that projects a huge image onto a piece of ground glass it's so enormous and it's so you know that image is so just gargantuan that you really you can fix that image there are ways to do it um my good friend ian kasnoff is a huge inspiration yeah. on this uh he is the lunatic who is in a in a trailer camera pulling huge sheets of paper across and actually fixing these images but the the sheer effort involved is just uh, kind of mind-boggling and the expense. Yeah. Um, and I would go around to his place and just sit in the camera and look at the ground glass, and that was kind of all the experience that I needed. Yeah. Um, not that his photographs won't bring you to tears. I mean, they're just incredible, some of them, uh, some of the images that he captures. But the magic for me was just seeing this light suspended on a piece of ground glass mm -hmm. um and getting to sit with that in the same way that you'd get to sit with the real world and look at something and pay attention to something and watch it open itself up to you you get that inside this cathedral of light um it's a darkened room where there's nothing to do but just you know observe uh this sort of luminous brightly colored upside down world it's it's really magical but yeah, that that was the first point that I decided to sort of abandon the idea of actually capturing this image. And yeah. This, uh, you know, as photographers, we have this this sort of tendency to want to photograph everything, want to capture everything, want to preserve it, and and that's a sort of grasping at the world um, that I, mm. I question whether it's healthy sometimes. Yeah. And I have that in me. I, I sometimes just can't put a camera down. I'm useless at a wedding because I don't sit in my seat. I'm just yeah, yeah. <laughs> constantly moving around trying to take photographs. Um, I almost feel like, though, isn't it baked into the world of photography? If you, let's say, started out in the darkroom, there's literally a chemical called fix, like you're fixing the image. Yeah. So it's kind of part of the mindset of I mean, the that, process. That was the birth of photography, you know, when uh, Niepce finally managed to fix his image. Yes. Even though there had been photographs before of a sort, they would disappear they were in ephemeral. time. Yeah. Right. They were gone. So that fixing of that first image, which is here in Austin, I just I was just gonna say that's amazing. <laughs> boggles my mind. But just walk in and look at it for free anytime you want. Yeah, I just yeah, can't I don't know. Um that 
fixing of that image, that was the birth of photography. That's the moment that we, we suddenly realized we can take a slice of space and time and we can fix it, we can hold it, and then we can look at it in the future. And that is... <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder how that changed people's brains when that kind of came about. You well, know? well that's, that's the question that I have. You, you know, we... We went from a world where if you wanted to remember something, you had to write it down, you had to draw a picture, you had to remember it. And those methods are somewhat fallible. That memory is going to shift over time or that memory is going to be lost. Now we live in a world where pretty much everything can be recorded and, and kept for posterity 24-7. I truly believe one day we will all be wearing glasses that 24-7 just record our lived experience and it will all be available for review. And I don't have an opinion on whether that's a good yeah. thing or a bad thing, but what that must have done to human consciousness is, is something I don't think we've quite grappled with yet. The fact that we get to preserve time. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, prior to 1830 yeah. or whatever, that, that didn't exist. That wasn't a thing. Um, and it's only in recent years that it's become very, very accessible and, and almost banal to people that they can do that, you know? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think people talk a lot about now how with our smartphones, are we getting dumber or are we getting smarter? Because it's like with the phone, you don't have to really know anything. I mean, not really, but I mean, there's so, like, there's so many phone numbers that I don't memorize like I used right, to right. 20 years ago. I think that's a beautiful thing about it. I, I think of it as a second brain almost. You can offload a lot of your cognitive processes okay. to this device. So you don't have to be walking around with a bunch of stuff in your head. And all facts are accessible to you at all time. There's something just incredible about that. I mean, it's the library of Alexandria on steroids. Yeah. You know, we have access to this. So we can just tap into it at any time. But I'm very aware that that must be changing in the same way that it's changing what we remember and, and uh, how we look at the world and how we record the events of our lives. The fact that... <sighs> This technology has kind of reshaped how we interact with the world. I, I, I really wonder about what kind of effect that's, that's having on us yeah. um, and how we can use that in certain ways, but then also learn to pull back from that in, in certain ways as well. So not take the photograph or not obsess about fixing the image. Um, how does that relate to the art of photography, not yeah. taking a photograph? Yeah. Know? Or just what that makes me think of you specifically is your intentional choice to slow down and choose to use these somewhat, as people would call them, antiquated technologies to mm -hmm. create images, to create portraits, specifically with the tintypes. Right. I mean, that's a very deliberate choice. It's not a, it's a very uncommon choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that maybe even something that I'd read or maybe on your website, you talk about that that intentional choice to slow down and how that's helped you in a lot of ways too, with your photography, the rest of your photography. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, there's something about, you have a lot of skin in the game when you take a tintype photograph. Um, Cause you can't run the shutter 15 frames a second and hope you got it. You really have to get everything locked down and dialed down. You have to make sure your sitter's in the right space emotionally 
Uh, oh, yeah. You know, um, there's a lot of moving parts there. And the goal is to really only take one photograph. Um, obviously, we reshoot them when they go wrong. But um, you pay a time penalty there. There's a penalty in, you know, expenses. It's an expensive process yeah. um, to actually make one of these things. But the act of choosing that ancient, antiquated process that really is burdensome um, in a lot of ways... I think it it imbues the photograph with a little more specialness. It becomes a more of a more of a treasured artifact. I mean, I get emails from people, you know, they'll essentially say, "If my house burned down tomorrow, I'm grabbing the tintype and the kid and the dog, and that's it." Oh you know? wow! And uh, that's such a huge compliment to to receive, and it's yeah. kind of mind blowing for me. Yeah, um, because it's it's the day job. It's just taking photographs, um, but there's a there's a quality to those images that, you know, really is quite unique. Um, and I think they're almost imbued with this power because they're a one-to-one replication of the world. You know, mm-hmm. that plate interacted with that sitter, the light bounced off that sitter and hit that plate. There is no way to reproduce it. It becomes this really unique artifact and very, very special and, and people really treasure them. So, Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, maybe we could talk about how you you know, seven years ago, found yourself starting that business or even how you got into photography to begin with? Was it, did the tintype come first or was it photography, your interest in photography? Uh, it was always photography. I picked up my dad's camera. It's a, it's a pretty common story. Um, sounds like a very similar story yeah. to your own. Uh, picked up my dad's camera, took it on vacation, took it out when we were riding BMX, took it out shooting pictures of friends and bands and all the rest of it and really just found it to be a very powerful tool. I was in art school. That was always kind of my trajectory. Um, and, and in photography, I found this way of like, not only being able to capture what I was seeing in the world and things that were important to me, but then being able to take those prints and completely disassemble them. Um, so mm. we do a lot of collage work that was very prevalent years ago. So I'd cut the photographs up and reassemble them and, you know, separate figure from ground and really play with what I had taken, oh. you know, on a roll of film. And then uh, Tintype, when I first came to Texas a long time ago, a really good friend of mine uh, had shown me an article with a photographer called John Coffer. And John's a really old school guy, uh, upstate New York, lives on a farm, milks his own cows, like, you know, doesn't own a motor vehicle. And in the 80s, he had taken uh, a horse and a cart, very similar to the way that the old itinerant photographers from the 1800s would have done it, took it all over the US. He quit his job. I think he was a Wall Street trader or something. Moved to this farm, uh, bought this horse and cart and just traveled the country and, and took portraits. And something about that, you know, this friend who had showed me this article just sat in the back of my brain and kind of percolated for, for a long time. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I reached a point in my life where I wasn't happy with my, with my job. I'd started to feel very stuck. I uh, wasn't, wasn't creating. Is that when you were doing the security systems? Yeah. I managed a branch for ADT security or a dealer for ADT security. Yeah, one of the, one of the worst jobs imaginable. Uh, not, not <laughs> for an artist. For I an mean, artist, yeah. yeah. Um, found out I had a real aptitude for sales, so that was kind of fun. Oh, that helps. Um, yeah. yeah. And there were times that, you know, we really were helping people out, but there was a lot of times that it was, you know, you're selling vacuum cleaners door-to-door. Um, yeah. It's the same kind of thing. 
so yeah reached the end of my rope with that um wrote a long overdue letter of resignation uh said my piece walked away and this was all wrapped up in the same kind of time uh that i had been learning the tintype process oh yeah and uh yeah i just i just yeah went 100 percent in that direction just decided um i'm gonna have a go at this um and see what i can do with it um and kaffa was really the inspiration for mm. the mobile studio so built this tiny house on wheels and that gave me the ability to kind of move the studio around and bring the photography to people rather than the old model because you know 2011 2012 is not a good time to be starting a portrait studio because there pretty much wasn't a portrait (laughs) studio left in this entire country um and what was left was uh subject of much ridicule yeah like um, glamour shots <laughs> right which is a shame because it's a it's a beautiful art form and, and people need that they need a place that they can go and bring the kids every year and get a photograph like that i didn't even realize when i what i was playing with when i opened the business but how important that is to people um yeah i wanted to talk about that a little bit real quick because i mean this kind of goes back to what you were saying about what the person might grab on their way out of a burning house mm-hmm it's like, yeah, we don't have that experience anymore. I mean, I wonder why. Why did that go away, I wonder? Like, I, I even have some photos of me and my dad from Olin Mills. There was an Olin wow. Mills studio on, on Ben White years ago <laughs> in the 80s. Um, and then J.C. Penney's, or was it J.C. Penney's or Sears yeah, used to have their I photo studio? Both, I think they both did them. Sears yeah. did up until, you know... They may still have it even. I don't I don't know. Is it just that we all have phones now that take pictures and everyone has does their selfies and they just feel like they don't need anything better than that? I, I think want- yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think I think the technology we have digitally scratches the itch that is I want to remember this. It's got video too, so you can hold up the thing that's already in your pocket um, and you can take a photograph. There's no fuss. There's no controls. There's no aperture. There's no worrying about technicalities. There's nothing standing in between you and taking that photograph, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, this really is an incredible thing. Um, And they even have like portrait modes now that'll blacken the background. They'll change the focus. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, what we have in our pockets is, (laughs) is, I mean, it's, it was unthinkable 20 years ago in terms of the the power of that technology. But you've seen this, the, the phone has taken all these devices in our lives, notepad, calculator, uh, letter writing, photography, all these areas, even the music player, you know, the record player, like yeah. all these objects have just been um, collapsed, digitized, and put into one device. And there's something just magical about that. It's mm. wonderful technology. But with with the tintype, what drew me to tintype was this question of like, well, what are we losing here? Because almost overnight, you couldn't get film developed anywhere. Um, Film stocks were getting pulled back. You couldn't get decent prints. Uh, We live in Austin, so we we have a lab, and we're very lucky. But there felt like there was this vacuum that had emerged. Yeah, Polaroid went out of business, Kodak. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Somebody just handed me in an antique store a, a roll of Kodachrome. And it was her grandfather's, and she knew she'd finished the role. And she was asking, how do I see these it's images? Like, you can't. <laughs> I did. A friend of mine found a place for her where they'll develop it as a black and white negative, but you lose the Kodachrome color. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So there are possibilities, but it's all this sort of like, this is basically a guy souping the film in his bathtub. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. not 
you know, right. a professional operation. So there are ways around it. But almost overnight, we we turned, and it was the advent of the cell phone, really iPhone one that coming out. That was the final nail in the coffin of of analog photography and digital cameras. By that point, were getting really really good, uh, and they're phenomenal today. I mean, yeah, you know, why would you shoot anything else? And I'm definitely not one of these purists who think you should only be shooting analog or digital is the devil or all the rest of it. I will shoot anything, anywhere, anytime. Yeah. No judgments whatsoever. I don't think people would assume that about you. Some people do. Like, I get a lot of photographers in the studio and I get a lot of grumpy photographers who oh, just yeah. kind of want to bitch and moan about how digital ruined their lives. Oh, wow. For me... I didn't see that. I just saw it opening up all these doors. I was late to digital and I, I did struggle with it because I'd been, I'd spent so long in the dark room in my teenage years. Uh, the digital, and it still doesn't like sitting at the computer is not the same for me, yeah. um, but it opens up and affords this new world. And, and t- certainly in terms of like how quickly you can learn photography, I mean, you can't make mistakes, you know, it's, you know, um, immediate feedback. Yeah. You get this feedback loop that's so rapid, um, and and you can learn so quickly, but I think we all kind of got excited about this new world of digital photography and pushed in that direction. Um, and I'm glad that we did, but I think we left certain things behind Mm. and, and you saw it when that infrastructure of film manufacturers and film developing, once that started to collapse, there was no alternative uh, for a while. So anyway, the, the tintype thing kind of was born out of that thinking of, well, is there still a place for a tangible analog image, you know, that's proven to be an archival yeah. uh, thing and will hopefully last for generations. And um, it's a style of picture taking that is not modern, but it does lend itself to something that you can take with you pretty immediately. Right. Which it's is quick, which is not common yeah. either. It's got a really quick turnaround as well. When, when we shoot a photograph, you know, I'm in the dark room for two minutes and then I can bring an image out and you can watch it appear in the fixed tray. That's really, really quick. It's not yeah. like we've got to finish the 36 roll film and send it off to San Antonio or whatever. Right. It's, it's very, very immediate. So it is this sort of weird process that it's one of the earlier forms of photography but in terms of its workflow uh it's pretty it's pretty quick you you get to see the images pretty pretty quickly and that serves us well when we do um commercial and editorial stuff you can shoot the photograph you can show the client and, yeah, it's not uh, an ipad but it's, it's right enough right? yeah yeah it's not a screen <laughs> but that's what they expect you know and, and if you were shooting film it, that's really difficult you i don't know. know how they did that for so many decades I, I just, they would just <laughs> rush them they would have labs where they would or polaroid i guess they shot polaroid a lot too. of test a lot of test shots yeah. yeah but they would also have labs where you could send them a film and within an hour you'd get at least a contact sheet that yeah. you could show the client you know but yeah once that infrastructure went away it's not it's not in existence anymore. Um, so yeah, tintype serves the purpose really well, I think. And this is why you're starting to see a lot of tintype photographers popping up all over the country. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, there's a lot now. Oh, um, interesting. Which warms my heart to no end. Yeah. You know, because people are realizing that like, oh, we can set this up in our little town and we can work in the vernacular. We can just have regular people coming in, bringing their lives and their stories and their kids and all the rest of it. And we can make photographs for them. And that's applicable anywhere, you know? Um, it's not an Austin thing. I think at first yeah. people just assumed, well, it's Austin, it's a hipster thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah, Okay, yeah. this is going to burn out in a few years. I admittedly also <laughs> had had the same reservations that maybe that would happen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah i'm I'm wed to a number of people now they've been coming in for six seven years and and taking a picture every single year oh wow and, you know, they have plans to do that f- as long as the children are in the house or whatever so yeah there's a real it's got legs i guess yeah, yeah. Uh, which which was as amazing to me as anything Maybe you share some more with me about just this business, like how it's changed your life, some of the rewarding experiences that have come from it, like even just stories of of really great moments or just anything that you want to kind of like help us understand like what this business means to you um, man, that's a, as a part of your life, a big part of your life. That's a big question. I've seen um, this never, you know, I still can't get my head around it. I've seen couples come in as young couples and then they've come back for a pregnancy portrait and then they've come back with a child. Oh, and then, wow. then I've watched that child grow up. There's something about that process where you are really involved with somebody's life and recording their life and, and making a photograph that that child can give to their children. Yeah. Because um, it's not like a film print or a Polaroid where it's going to, you know, fade out in 30, 40 years. I mean, these are archival for hundreds of years if they're made right. So you, you, that, well, once I was a few years in, I started to realize like, oh, people are really using this service. Um, You start to see yourself in, in this bigger lineage of, how do I describe this? I'm a sort of small cog in a, in a bigger turning mechanism here. Yeah. Um, there's something bigger than me going on here. And it's that recording of these moments in time that then get put on the wall and become this sort of heirloom artifact. I just, ha- when I started the business, I just hadn't thought that far ahead. Yeah. And, and I, I, and that, that never ceases to amaze me when people come back, it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a huge compliment, but yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's wild to think about, especially when you look at old photographs from the you know, turn of the century or whatever, and or you find an a- album in an antique store, and it's just photograph after photograph of the same kids, and it's this whole life's been recorded, and we're not even scratching that with a yearly portrait or whatever. But there's something about building that body of work over time um, and giving people something to kind of reflect back on. That yeah, it's it's out of my hands. Uh, that's how yeah. it feels. It's, ah. it's bigger than me, um, and yeah, that that I just find to be the most uh rewarding thing i think uh most rewarding part of the process um it also kind of locks me into it because i've made this obligation to certain families where you know they're going to want these things in the future they've they've started this sort of sequence of imaging and hopefully i'll be around to provide it or if not me somebody else in the business will be there you know? yeah um, yeah i guess I, I i hate to admit that i just kind of thought the bulk of your business was probably just people that are just going to justine's that have had a few drinks that are like oh what the hell let's get a picture that's definitely a huge part of my demographic <laughs> uh yeah definitely wrangling uh the drunks is definitely a big part of it um because folks are out there having a good time they're all dressed up it's date night you know yeah. but again it's the same thing of like you know me, me and my wife are pretty obsessed with photo booths if we ever see one especially one of the old film ones we jump in it right away. Yeah. That's a, a sort of a way to record a moment of time. Yeah. You know? And it might be a throwaway moment of time. You know, most say, well, I'm just at a bar and I'm drinking or whatever. But that's an important part of our lives, you know. Um, you're sharing these experiences with somebody. And yeah, just just 
being available, I guess, for people mm. to, to use that service, you know, and folks come in all the time. And I, I, one of my favorite questions to ask is like, what brought you in? You know, what, what, what are you celebrating? What's the reason? Um, and it's not always celebration. Sometimes it's a divorce or a death or, oh, wow. you know, something else they want commemorated in some way. But there's always a memory there. There's always something in that person's life that is forever going to be imbued into that photograph, you know, and serve as a reminder or a motivation or um, inspiration or whatever it is. People have myriad of different reasons for wanting to be photographed. And I'm still I'm still exploring those those yeah. reasons. There's, there's so much. There's just so much there. How many do you think you've done by now? That's a good question. I, out of curiosity, just counted because um, I keep a scan of every file that I've ever shot. Oh, okay. So it's a pretty easy count. Um, and I believe I'm, a, I'm about to hit 15,000. Um, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, you consider each one of these things is hand poured, hand developed, hand shot, hand varnished, hand scanned. You know, it's a laborious process to make that image. You've got about an hour hour's work in each photograph mm. um, once it's all said and done. And uh, yeah, 15,000. Uh, I think I haven't counted since Christmas, but we had a very busy Christmas season. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm close to, if not over 15,000, which is like, you know, if you shoot digital and you're a wedding photographer, that's just like, that's a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, right. <laughs> um <laughs> So it's not a huge deal, but yeah, it is. Yeah. It's uh, it's a little terrifying to think about, honestly, because the other thing is all those images around the world. I've got a a bunch of them here, but I don't have that many because there is no way to replicate it. So I have my digital files, but there's fifteen thousand pieces of metal with people's faces and families and memories on them out in the world, you know, and they'll all outlive me. Yeah. Um, if they're looked after. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole other layer to it there, which is just kind of a mi- total mind boggle. Is that like legacy? Is that something you think about? I don't I don't try and think <laughs> about that stuff, honestly. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what that looks like in the future. I don't know where that work will be, but I kind of like that. I like that I've had to relinquish it. I don't get to keep that. Yeah. Ne- there's no negative in this. I don't keep anything. The negative in the print walks out the door with that client. But that's what photography for me, that's the kind of important thing about photography. And what we lost when we transitioned to digital was the fact that we weren't printing these images anymore. We were storing them in the cloud. Who knows where they are? Um, but with the tintype, I know that they're out there in the world doing the work that a photograph mm. needs to do, which is, you know, every once in a while you look at it and, and you think about who you were and who you want to be and um, what's important to you. And that's a powerful thing. And so, people, people that are important to you. Right, exactly. Uh, a really, I mean, a really tough part of the job is learning that somebody you photographed has passed away. Oh. That's happened to me multiple times. And often it's someone will bring a photograph back or they'll be talking about a photograph and how meaningful it is and they'll so-and-so passed away. And again, it just puts me in, it makes me feel like I'm part of a really big timeline of events and, you know, happenings in the world. Um, And had that photograph not been taken, it wouldn't serve as a memento of of that person who's passed. Um, So yeah, there's, there's something quite powerful there too. And this, you know, 30, 40 years ago was all pretty commonplace. We go to a portrait studio, take a photograph, you know, it was part of what we did, but we, I think we forgot that in the past decade or two. So getting to kind of, 
harness that power and offer that to people again, that's that's something I, I, I do take pride in. So would you say that that part of your life and your overall kind of photography career is kind of like a, a constant and that in, even into the future, you see it just continuing the way it is? Yeah, my my ultimate goal is that I won't be the one taking the photographs. Um, the the reason it's called Lumiere and not Adrian Whip Photography is because I wanted it to exist outside of myself. Hmm. I don't particularly want it to be about my photographs. Oh, you got to go see this guy. He's whatever you know. Yeah, he takes these photographs. I want it to be more. This business serves a, a need that people have yeah. to be photographed, to remember, to be remembered, uh, and that's independent of me. Of me, I, I'm not important in that process at all. So, long term, the goal will be to, um, and I, I may start getting this off the ground in 2020. Uh, apprentice somebody, employ them, get them up to a standard where, you know, I know they know what they're doing and, and they can offer a, a high quality photograph um, and have have somebody else work that studio, which frees me up to explore other avenues, other areas. Um, so that's kind of the long-term goal. Yeah. And that's where I see it in 20 years. I, I hope the business is still there, but I don't see me as necessarily needing to be a part of it. You know, I yeah. think some people disagree with that, but you know, when I entertain this idea yeah, to yeah, people. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's never really been about me and what I shoot. It's yeah. more about what I offer uh, and why that's important to people. And, and hopefully that will stand the test of time. Well, I definitely want to then talk about what else you'd like to spend your time doing or your other projects. But I just had this other one other question I wanted to touch on within this uh, within that subject is what have you learned after seven years of doing these portraits? What do you feel like you've learned about people or yourself? Or I mean, because it's a very specific thing, taking a portrait of someone, working with them, talking with them, dealing with their mood or mm-hmm. how they feel about having their picture taken or anything. I mean, I just, has it, how has it changed you? Has it made you maybe more compassionate towards people or yourself? Or I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to imagine like how that could you know, you have to develop a style of interacting with people and it seems like that would facilitate kind of uh, more of an appreciation of people or just a way of learning to interact with people. Um, I'm naturally quite reclusive. I don't like people. I, I like people, but I don't like to be around people. Um, let me rephrase that. <laughs> I love people. Um, but I'm not naturally drawn to social situations, uh, interacting with people. So one thing I learned very early on is that I'm not a natural portrait photographer. I'm just not. I was. Just, that's why um, I wanted to ask because I thought that is not an easy thing to do. It's one of the hardest things to do in the world. And some of my favorite photographers are portrait photographers, and um, I watch them work. And just the the warmth and the connection that they have with their subjects is always something i'm trying to emulate but it doesn't come naturally to me um dan winters comes to mind dan's one of the best i mean uh i haven't seen him shoot but i know you have pictures of him so i'm assuming you guys are friends and yeah dan's a good friend and you watch him work i mean you watch him just interact with people and you know like a hug from dan is one of those things that it'll you keep you energized for a week you know he's one of those people um where he he loves to be around people he loves to help people he loves to show them in the best light um you couldn't ask for a better role model as a portrait photographer 
he really is something else. So how did you get over that hump, or did you? <laughs> I, I'm still working on it. Yeah, yeah, I'm still working on it. Uh, I uh, I have all the good intentions in the world, and then someone walks through the door, and I just sort of climb up a little bit. Uh, um, uh, that's just that's my nature. I think um, I am getting much much better about it. One thing that the studio gives me, it's like it's kind of like you walking into my bedroom honestly like it is just my space you know yeah. aesthetically and the way it's set up and everything is sort of kind of dialed in to where i know what i'm doing in that space yeah you like the master of that domain yeah much. so when people walk into that space i can control that situation very very well and i can get what i need out of them and i can make sure that they're comfortable and and, and hopefully make sure we take a, a, a photograph that honors them really well so having those four walls and this very sort of rigid process where things have to be done in a certain way to a certain procedure, while at times it can feel a little bit rote, that framework gives me the ability to focus on connecting with people. Ah. And because that's, that's the important thing in a photograph. You have to put that sitter at ease. Tintype's a, a beautiful medium because it's just so much stuff going on. The camera is enormous. The lens is just like looking into the eye of Sauron. It's just <laughs> this. It's, it's not like me holding up a phone and, and we all know what to do in that scenario. We know how to be photographed. You get somebody in the chair in, in the Tintype studio and you wheel this big light off the wall and you put a huge reflector under them and then you start dialing in all these lights in the back and it's a real experience yeah um and a lot of people get kind of a little bit freaked out they sort of take it very seriously which is good they bring yeah. they bring yeah. something to that process that they wouldn't bring if it was just a throwaway disposable image so that whole carnival that i'm putting on and just putting and just making this photograph i always find that that helps me to grab that person's attention and 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 sort of bring them into that process yeah um and make sure they know what's going on um ultimately my goal is to make a very honest portrait and that might not be a portrait that you particularly like now you probably will in the future is what i often tell folks um I almost need that process and that structure of all the stuff going on to enable me to make that connection with my sitter and, okay. and make sure that we, we make something that, you know, um, serves them well. So, yeah, it's something I, I'm always working on, always trying to get better at, you know, is making those connections. And, and I think there's a reason that the studio is the way it is and I use the process that I do. I think that's the sort of crutch that I need to oh. guide somebody through a process. Whereas you look at a photographer like Dan and he could take you on the porch right now and just, you know, take a photograph that'll blow your mind. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot more rapport there. And, uh, you know, he's just sort of naturally that way, I think. Uh, and a lot of portrait photographers are, and I have a, a great deal of admiration for, for a lot of a lot of other photographers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all that inspiration always serves to you know show me where I'm lacking, and hopefully, yeah, uh, you know, we just we get better. Yeah. So let's say you apprentice someone. What do you do with the time that you have? Then, like, what projects would you like to talk about that you feel like? you're passionate about putting more energy into those um the big one recently over the past you know year or two has been um stereo photography which is a three-dimensional representation of the world this is something that actually predates photography the history of it's super interesting oh yeah um a guy called wheatstone before the first photograph was taken had figured out 
the the nature of binocular vision, why we have two eyes. And what binocular vision does is allows us to see depth in the world. Um, so we see depth in certain ways. There are, you know, certain two-dimensional ways that we see depth, such as, you know, a receding horizon is misty and gray, whereas something close to you is much more contrasty and clear. But really the, the beauty of of our vision is the fact that we have these two eyes and they're slightly offset from each other so wheatstone years ago um figured out that if he drew uh, a very simple object like a cube from one angle and then he drew it from another angle so looking at it slightly from the left and looking at it slightly from the right um and then using this crazy mirror con- contraption he could put these two images side by side and feed them into your brain so that your left image gets the left view and your right your right eye gets the right view yeah that your brain would then stitch that image and create a dimensional space two or three years later photography comes along and photographers realize well, well now we don't have to draw the cube we can photograph the cube with two lenses that make two very similar but slightly different photographs. And then when we put those side by side using optics as a viewer, the brain will do the rest. Yeah. So from the birth of photography, really up until the 1910s, 1920s, stereo photography was an enormous part of how people saw the world. You'd get these, you know, keystone views or whatever, um, stereo cards in libraries and schools and museums, um, and if you wanted to see a view of, you know, pyramids of Giza or whatever, you would go look up this photograph and you'd see it in actual dimensional space. Your brain is just convinced that it's there, essentially. Yeah. For various reasons, this as well died a death okay. uh, and has largely been forgotten. It had a little resurgence in the 50s because you could get 35 mil cameras that would shoot in stereo and you had this sort of hobbyist scene of people that would, you know, assemble the stereo pairs or they'd put on a stereo slideshow. You can also project these 3D images. Mm. But there's a lot of fuss and there's a lot of... Um, it's kind of like the tintype thing. There's There's... There's this antiquated technology. There's something that gets in the way, and and for a lot of people, that's the viewer. You know, you need this viewer to see the images. You can't just pick up a 3D print and look at it in three dimension. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Anyway, a couple of years back, I had a show um, where I was debuting this thing called the Alif. Basically, was a um, it was an old microfiche that I found at the Goodwill. I converted it to where we could. Um, put in these glass plates these giant glass plates um and i would cut up slide film negatives and collage them all together and then you're basically creating this sort of flat plane that can be explored by yeah. the alif dimensionally <laughs> um it doesn't make a whole lot of sense there's a video on my website and and it will it will yeah. become crystal clear if you see it in action um but i was obsessed with this thing because you know i could assemble all these different photographs on one plane and then the viewer was the one who was actually reading that image and the path that they took through that image would be different for each person so i get to talking to somebody about what they saw in that photograph would be completely different from what somebody else saw in that photograph. Mm -hmm. So it was a different way of kind of exploring what an image is. Anyway, at that show, a bunch of people uh, kept telling me you need to learn about 3d photography. That, that sounds like a logical next step from this. Um, And it wasn't something I was particularly familiar with. I'd seen the stereo cards, but I'd never had a viewer. So I'd never, never thought to look at one. And as soon as I, I, picked one up and looked at it a friend of mine actually brought me a 
box of these things, stereo cards with a viewer, really generous gift um, from an old friend. And uh, I just, I pretty much closed the studio that night and just was just looking at these things, just absolutely absorbed into these worlds, you know. It became very apparent to me that that's what I'd been looking for because I'd been, you know, layering photographs onto glass and like stacking them and trying to shoot through them. I was trying to bring dimensionality into my work. The A-lift was as close as I got. All these different techniques. But ultimately, once you re-photograph something, you flatten it again. That's the problem with photography. You take this dimensional world that we have around us that we can roam about in, assuming you have, you know, decent vision and two eyeballs. You can experience the world in this way. And as soon as we photograph it, you take all of that space time and you just flatten it. You just crush it down onto this two-dimensional plane, um, and then you hang it on the wall as a print. And that's not to take away from what photography is. I mean, that's still a powerful, powerful thing. But there is something missing there for me. There always, I think, always has been. There's something about photography that isn't true to the real world. It's not how we see the real world. It doesn't absorb us in the same way you know or, or at least i find and and in this day and age where we are hyper saturated with images we are all so good at looking at photographs that we don't really look at photographs for a very long time yeah you know you, you watch somebody on instagram i mean you could see the most you know beautiful image of all time and you know it gets maybe 3 or 4 seconds and we're so good at reading that image we scan it we get everything we need out of it maybe it absorbs us for 10 or 15 seconds but that's a really spectacular image gets the double tap and we're on to the next one there's something about a three-dimensional image and i'm always giving these to people just showing them like hey look at this (laughs) once it clicks once they learn how to look at that image the jaw drops and they'll spend minutes with that image i mean i've had people sitting in these chairs just sitting looking at these photographs (laughs) for minutes at a time they're not you know they're old photographs you know they're incredible but then maybe nothing you know in the subject matter particularly special it's just the fact that your brain is convinced that it's in that world and you're seeing this, you're seeing an aperspectival view. So you're getting a view that comes from two lenses side by side and then your brain is creating that image. That image, that three-dimensional image only exists in the mind. It doesn't exist on the paper. On the paper, they're just two images that kind of look the same side by side. Yeah. And that's why for years I had just passed up these stereos uh, in antique stores and thrift stores and never really quite got what... Yeah what yeah. was going on there um but it takes the viewer and then it takes the you know the mind behind the viewer uh to stitch it all together and just get absorbed into that world completely yeah um so how have you integrated this into your practice uh it, or what do you intend to do my intention is to um i've been playing with um their uh essentially glass plate slides so it's a full color slide um a slide film so it's really high resolution beautiful saturated colors and what i've been doing is i've been shooting the stereos and then uh having them printed back to film so just like the tintype it's an analog process it's you know photochemistry um so take these negatives sandwich them between glass and then frame them in wood um, so you have this really nice, looks like an old magic lantern slide. Like it's got this really cool feel to it. It's got a bit of weight. 
and it's very very special it doesn't feel like a photograph and even when you see them you know just in the box or whatever um, they don't look like much they require light they require being backlit so you hold them up to a window or to a light and then you you know you use the viewer and you lock into that world and the combination of backlit slide film full color um, on these glass these glass images for me it's like the whole hog it's photography kind of coming full circle and and really giving us an accurate representation of the world something that you can get as absorbed in as you can in the real world um that's something that's very important to me is sort of looking knowing how to look how to really see how to sit with something and see it you know it's kind of like uh you say a word a thousand times and it just becomes abstract and nonsensical and you realize it's kind of unmoored from any consensus reality. The same thing happens when you look at things in the world. You spend long enough looking at something and you can't tell what it is anymore. You are completely absorbed in it. You see the entire universe in a, in a leaf, you know, with a bright bit of sunlight coming through it. That fascinates me. Uh, photography aside, that interaction with the world visually um really just i could spend all days just looking at things yeah and i think i'd reached a point where photography wasn't quite it wasn't quite representing that in the world um and then these stereos the stereo photography came into my life and that's as close as i think we're going to get um and it's good enough for me um, and I love just sitting people down with these stereos and watching them kind of clip into it and uh, just explore that world with the eyes. You know, the eyes move around in range at depth. You just don't get that in a, in a two-dimensional print. There's just no way for that to translate. Um, and it's a more natural way of seeing a photograph, I think, because it's just what we do. That's why we have two eyes. That's how we explore the world. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's gotten its hooks into me pretty hard. And uh, for, for the past two years, pretty much, that's been, uh, that's been just one. 100% obsession is just figuring out how do I shoot these photographs? How do I print them? How do I display them? There's a lot of technical hurdles. It's really unexplored territory. Um, oh. Even with Tintype, you know, there were there were people that I could ask questions of, you know, there were plenty of people shooting it through the, uh, through the 90s, um, kept that process alive. But with stereos, there's just very, very little out there. Um, huh. yeah, very, very little information and, 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 and nobody really working in the medium. So I'm hoping that I can get a product off the ground that I can ship to people, be these glass plate negatives. The real beauty of the process is, um, they work really well on a phone. Like phones are now so high resolution that yeah. you can magnify them a little bit and there's not really much breakdown. So that's another method of delivery. Oh, yeah. I can email you a file. You can save it to your phone and you can see, you can step into that world. You know, you you can see it that way. And it's backlit. It's bright. It's an iPhone or whatever phone you use. So the screen is, you know, more than capable of of reproducing that well. It's not quite the same as the film, the actual tangible. Um, Of course, there's always some give and take there but that i think really reinforces how special the slides are you can get even more absorbed into them Um, they become even more special um but yeah there's a couple of different ways to deliver these photographs to people i just have to figure out you know exactly what that's going to look like but then hopefully that will inspire people to to work in this medium you know hopefully we can uh, have more 3d photographers in the world because it's uh it's kind of a lonely business (laughs) yeah you're the pioneer right now I guess it, that project's called the Daydream Society, right? Mm-hmm. And on the web page for that, it says 
celestial visions from the imaginal realm mm-hmm. like what what why that tagline like what is that how does that relate to what you're passionate about I think art for me has always been about giving somebody an image that they can uh, get absorbed into and that takes them to a place that is sort of hyper real. It's not, you know, it's not reality, but you you also can't quite pin down what it is or where it came from. Um, and, and I see that in the tintype process as well. It's quite arresting as a modern person to be photographed in a, in a tintype because it puts you in this other world where you know it's you and you know it's a modern photograph, but you just can't quite, you've never seen anything like it. You just yeah. can't quite... It breaks you out of that pattern of being so well-versed in looking at imagery. And we all are. I mean, right out the gate, if you were born, you know, 75 onwards, you know how an image works. You know how it works on you to the point where we don't particularly look at these images anymore. And the tin, the tintype in portraiture for me gave me a, a, almost the ability to kind of shake people a little bit and just go, look at this photograph. You know, it's different. Yeah. Um, this is you in a different realm. So with the Daydream Society and a lot of what I shoot outside of Lumiere, I really just, I wander about in the world and pick up objects and see scenes and just get absorbed by something. And I want that absorption to carry. Mm. I fall in love with something in the world. I want you to fall in love with it as an image. Um, and that that's one of the most difficult things you can you can do, I think. But uh, isn't that like kind of like the mission of the artist in general, kind of in a very li- basic way? I like to think so. Yeah, I, I think our art world is, is is a little corrupted by um, theory and political discourse and concepts, you know, so I don't necessarily see that in the art world. Very often, it's certainly there. As opposed to just the experience being primary. Right to just become absorbed by a work and to let it act on you in a way that is unknown to you. Mm. Um, I always think about the, you know, cave paintings of LaSalle and all these old rock drawings uh, that prehistoric man had, in some cases, tunneled miles under the surface of the earth to draw, to, to represent something that they saw in the world how mysterious and pure that is, that impulse that's in us to take what we see in the world and translate that experience to somebody else. But if you were to walk up to a cave painter of Southwestern France, why are you doing this? What does it mean? They wouldn't be able to tell you, but there's something powerful there that they have to act upon. Um, There's a process that they're going through. Um, and there's a reason that this art exists in the world. Um, and, and it still speaks to us today. You know, um, you can go into these caves and see these things and, and be incredibly moved by them, but not have the first clue of like what that means or why it was there. And I came through art school just being sort of, you know, sort of filled to the brim with theory and discourse and understanding and reasons for like, you don't need to look at this piece criticism. of... Criticism. Criticism, <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. Um, you don't need to look at this piece of work. We can tell you what it means. You need to read the textbooks. Um, well, you don't, don't you think that, in a way, lends itself to what I was thinking when you were talking a minute ago, is like how I imagine most people are just... 
intimidated maybe to have the experience you're talking about to mm-hmm. let their guard down and be moved mm-hmm. by something like yeah. i feel like most people are probably pretty resistant to that or they just they're intimidated by it or like oh i don't understand that mm-hmm. right i don't know yeah. no absolutely um i think we live in a time where it's very easy to be distracted by other things. I mean, you can do this looking in the mirror. You can just look at yourself in the mirror for 30 seconds to a minute and you just get, oh, it's almost psychedelic. You get absorbed into this world and it's just attention. You're just paying attention. That's all it is. Um, but that's a terrifying prospect. It's terrifying to me. It's, ter- it's terrifying to do that, to sort of have that communion with the world where you're letting itself, you're letting the world open itself up to you by your simple witnessing of it. Um, and we could really go off the rails here if you like, because there's all kinds of, um, you know, science is coming to the conclusion that if you're not looking at something, it doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, on a very real level, right. that wave function of me looking at you as I turn away collapses. Of course, you still exist in some sense, but you don't, um, in any rational explanation of it, you cease to exist when I cease to look at you. And that is just mind-boggling because that tells you that there's something going on. When we look at something, there is something happening there. There is some co-creation of the world between my eyes and whatever it is that my, my gaze is fixed upon. Yeah, And uh, I don't claim to understand any of it. But you feel it, you know, you, you feel it when you look at something in the world and, and you really pay attention to it. And anyway, with the stereo photography, certainly I found that's as close as I can come to translating that experience and gifting it to somebody else. Yeah. And anytime you do that, you don't really know what you're doing <laughs> and you don't really know what the experience of the person seeing it is going to be. But then again, you think of these cave paintings. Well, they don't know that, you know, if I go down in one of these caves and I see see these paintings, I'm going to be affected by it in some way. I'm going to see my my part in the lineage of history. That is a very different and more, for me, more pure art experience than where our art world is currently at, which is... um, self-referential critique and theory and, and, and ideas being the predominant uh, experience of art rather than the art itself. Yeah. Um, you look at uh, you look at a banana being taped to a wall yeah. and right. getting eaten by another artist. I love that stuff. I, just, <laughs> I, can't, I can't get enough of it. But what you're watching is you're watching the art world uh, with all of its cynicism and you know, the banana gets eaten and it's all of a sudden more valuable. You're watching it eat its own tail. There's nothing there. There's mm. no there there. You know, Banksy just shredded his painting. I don't know if you saw that. No. Had a painting. One of his very, really famous works went up for auction. Um, and uh, as the hammer fell, he somehow remotely engaged a device that dropped the painting into a shredder. The shredder was built into the frame. Oh, wow. Starts to shred, <laughs> shred the image. <laughs> and he's making a statement there. He's saying this is a, art is a Ponzi scheme. You know, it's gotten to the point where the value of this stuff is so divorced from what it actually is. And I can destroy a painting in front of you. And the art world is going to say, well, it just became more valuable. The shredder jammed halfway through. So now what we've got is this Banksy painting where you can see the top two thirds of it and the rest is just mangled and destroyed. And uh, I believe the person who 
bought it was told it's actually worth more money now. Oh, of course, you know because it's been destroyed um, and all the publicity, <laughs> right? Yeah, all the all the hubbub around it, and and you you find that an artist like Banksy can't get out of this <laughs> vacuum that we live in. Yeah, he can destroy yeah. his own work work on the wall, uh, and you just saw it with this banana uh, in Miami. Bananas ripped off the wall and eaten and. What it probably just it increased the value of this becomes this spectacle, but what was the banana on the wall telling us? You yeah. know, you've got a troll artist being trolled by another artist, and there's there's a statement there about the art world, but that doesn't tell me anything about my experience. It doesn't talk to me in the same way that a cave painting would talk to me. And we used to look at you know something like a cave painting as primitive art, but if essentially what you're seeing there is the, the essence of art. It existed before us. It'll exist after us. There's a reason we do this. We don't really know what that reason is. And you can apply all these layers of theory and critique and understanding, uh, you know, the sort of born out of modernism to, you can apply that to art, but it doesn't get to the bottom of, of what, of what art is and what it does to us and why it's so important, you yeah. know? But, uh, yeah, I like to think we're entering a new world where, you know, at some point the bubble's going to pop, and we're going to realize. And I, I'd like, I'd like to think that we're going to see art return back to a more, more primitive. I guess is the is the word uh, state. Yeah, I do feel like at the level that I'm at, at least that maybe you're at in Austin. I think it is at that level. I don't think it's mm-hmm. we're not at Miami, Basel, and no, Christie's no. or whatever. No, level, there's a, there's obviously. a reason. There's a reason we're in this town. Um, yeah. Because, it, it, I mean, historically, it's been a place of just wild expression and creativity and, and freedom in a lot of sense. Um, and uh, there's very few artists making money in this town. Uh, it's out there, of course. But, yeah, it's not quite on the same level as New York or London or Los Angeles. Um, but I think you also... You're, you're afforded more space to kind of play and create and not have to um, adhere to the to the whims of the art world, you know, or yeah. what, whatever it is currently saying is art or what needs to be in it for it to be called art. Right. You know, be that a, a political opinion or, or a, a critique of the world or whatever. Not that that stuff doesn't have a place. It always has a place in art. But I think it's become all consuming to where those of us that just want to sort of represent beauty or truth or an experience uh, and to gift that to somebody, to give them a piece of art that will allow them to communicate with that piece in some way, to sort of love it and have it love them back and and for there to be a co-creation there, I guess. You know, some of my favorite paintings I could just look at for days and there's always something else that I can get out of it. And my experience is different from your experience. And that's how it should be. It's not scripted. It's not, this is what the artist is trying to tell you. He's making a, you know, uh, critique of colonialism or whatever. Yeah. You know, we can see that, you know, we got it. What Now, what does that art have to offer me? Once I get what you were trying to say, there's nothing there. So yeah, Austin I think has always been a place where uh where you see that kind of bubbling up and there's some really radically great artists in this town. Oh yeah. Um that just yeah, uh, just in their sheds and garages just <laughs> cranking it out. It's yeah, incredible. It's cool. Yeah. It's a cool place to be. 
um, as you were talking, I was just thinking about your intentions and it just seems like very, just seems like there's a, a generosity in what you're wanting to do and a, and an optimism that I really appreciate. It's like wanting, you know, whether someone comes into your studio to take a portrait, you're creating this experience, they have this object that's very meaningful to them, or you're trying to explore the stereo photography as a way to somehow maybe translate your excitement and your experience of experiencing these images to someone else. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I think that's so cool. Where do you think that comes from? Like, what really is the at the base of that, what drives you to be, to, to have that generosity or that wanting to connect with people? That's a good question. Um, I, I I love the word generosity. Um, that's one of my kind of guiding principles with with Lumiere is that it feels like you're getting something more than its value in in dollars and cents, and that manifests in different ways. You know, sometimes I'll reshoot a photograph five or six times because I want to make oh, sure wow. that okay. we get it right and you're happy with it, and that is how I can show that generosity. Um, aside from that i've i've had experiences with art um i've been moved by art artworks um i I couldn't imagine life without that and i want people to experience that often when you go in an art gallery these days there's a lot of impenetrable bullshit on the walls um and it's really hard to kind of figure out what you're looking at and you're almost made to feel um small or stupid or uneducated if you don't quite immediately know what the artist is trying to communicate um i almost like art where the artist doesn't know what the artist is trying to communicate the artist is sort of taking something from the world some cue from the world some image some arrangement of objects that just moved them in a certain way uh, and manifested a feeling within that artist. And then that artist had enough sense to kind of know how to translate that, yeah, put it down in, in, in another form, basically preserve it, fix it, um, and then offer it to somebody else. And then for somebody else to have that experience, that's an, that's an act of, of supreme generosity. That's an experience that I give to you or I give to somebody else. I thought this the other day, uh, eating a cookie that a friend of mine had made, and uh, <laughs> it just tasted so incredible. <laughs> and uh, I was having an experience with this cookie, and and all I'm doing is I'm sort of consuming this amalgamation of flour and sugar and other stuff that you know the sum of its parts is not particularly important. But she had combined it in a certain way, uh, and she's a very skilled chef that that gave me an experience and it can be as simple as that you know i bake you a cookie and you taste that cookie and if you actually spend time and sit with it you're gonna have an experience that was translated from one person to another person there's something quite special about that and that transcends art that's all creativity you know you see that all over the place um there's something quite magic about that so I think at its core, art is an act of generosity. And again, going back to cave paintings, why would you, why would you go down to the bowels of the earth and you know, paint antelope on the wall and then bring your friends down there? And, and that's a spiritual experience. That's a journey that you go on together. You both you know, explore that realm and then communicate in some way. But I don't think those cave painters knew what they were communicating. Yeah. 
I don't think they had the first clue. They just felt this impulse as early artists felt that impulse to just translate the real world and to show it to somebody else. Um, and that for me is, I guess, the essence of, of artistic pra- practice, you know, yeah. it's just to put something else in somebody's hands and just say, hey, sit down, stop, look at this, you know, get absorbed by this because this will trigger things in you that I don't understand. Um, this will push you in directions that are out of my control, you know, yeah. and that's an amazing power to wield, you know, um, and all it takes is a little attention on the, on the, on the part of the viewer. Yeah, that's you, the artist takes action, and then the ripples are unimaginable. Probably. Right, yeah, yeah, you, you, you sort of relinquish control of it. And that's an act of generosity when you give something to somebody with no expectation of what that's going to look like in return or, you know, um, what effect that action's going to have in the world. You don't particularly know, you, you lose control of it. Um, but that's the, beautiful, that's the beautiful part of it. Because you've transmuted something, you've pulled something from the world, you've made it tangible, you've put it into a form, and this could be a you know piece of sculpture or a painting or poem or whatever, and then you've gifted it to somebody else, and then it has become its own thing, and that now its own thing can act in the world rather than a piece of art which is explainable and deconstructible and has an opinion and a point and it's very postmodern and it's very sort of you know dull in some sense that doesn't ex- that piece of art doesn't necessarily exist on its own as its own thing it doesn't exert a power in the world uh, in my opinion yeah beyond me trying to tell you something you know about a political opinion or, or a belief or a you know uh, conversation that i've been having <laughs> right well thank you for your generosity. Um, I'm wondering what's coming up next. Are you going to be touring this summer? Are you going to do workshops? I know you love to potentially you have in the past traveled around the country doing portraits just Mm -hmm. in the fashion of the uh, gentleman with the wagon. Yeah. Who I learned about actually on the Wikipedia page about tintypes. And I feel like there should be an entry. If someone on here is like an editor for Wikipedia, they should put an entry in here for Adrian on the tintype page. I think I would, I certainly wouldn't lay claim to, um, uh, having discovered this process. Well, no, not at all, but, uh, Um, you know, as a, as a prominent practitioner, yeah, there aren't there aren't many studios. There's a, there's a few guys in the country and, and the world who've been doing this for a long time. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely a list of names that you could add to that article for sure. But I think going back to Koffer, um, he was kind of the guy that sort of wrestled it free of the Civil War reenactment crowd oh, yeah. and kept it going uh, through a time where it was it was really dying out. Not that I have any beef with the Civil War reenactment crowd. Um, in the slightest, um, but that's a particular way of looking at the process. Everything has to be period correct. You know, they only use natural light, um, old lenses, yada, yada, yada. Um, whereas with Koffer, you started to see that this was, this medium had other applications. Um, and then Sally Mann picked it up as well. She's a big one. Mm. Um, she did a lot of, still does a lot of wet plate work and it's radically different from anything else you'll see. Um, it really becomes an alchemy in her hands, uh, more of a chemical process than a, than a photographic process. So her work's super interesting, but, um, yeah, the future for Lumia, um, 
I, uh, I try and travel every summer. I'm not sure if we're traveling this summer because um, I'm really buckling down on the on the Daydream Society. So the studio will be open business as usual, but uh, I'm really trying to launch this, this stereo photography yeah. thing. I have a trip actually in two weeks. Um, I'm going back to uh, the mountains west of Mexico City. We went two years ago, I think, um, to see the monarch butterfly migration. Yeah. Um, so from all of North America, these monarchs funnel down pretty much right over Texas, um, and then they end up roosting or you know overwintering, they call it, uh, in the mountains uh, of Mexico. We went out there two years ago to see that, and I just, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It's just absolutely spectacular. Um, at one point, the whole colony of butterflies moved they relocated because it was very snowy it was they, they'd kind of picked the wrong side of the mountain um and the snow came in and um millions of these things just start dripping off the trees and what you think are firs oil firs you know you see their sort of heavy branches they just look sort of green and dull all of a sudden these butterflies are just dripping off the leaves and flying over you and they were relocating and it was just one of the most astounding things i've ever seen in my life wow and I filled memory cards and rolls of film and all the rest of it, but I just couldn't quite, I couldn't quite translate that experience um, and and how profound it was. So I somewhat naively, I imagine, I'm going back uh, and I'm bringing the stereo rig and I've yeah. you know two DSLRs, so I've got high shutter speed and good depth of field and i'm gonna try and take some 3d images of these butterflies oh, wonderful um, so that hopefully will become a series within the daydream society um, of these negatives so that's that's my focus right now i've got a few more things to button up with the packaging of these stereos um and isn't there some subscription aspect to that is that i'd like that to be a f- to be a part of it yeah um some sort of uh some sort of way that you know, once you buy a viewer, which are really cheap, I've been making these little 3D viewers out of cherry. It's a really nice word um, with glass optics. It's a really nice little viewer. Once somebody buys that, you essentially could sign up to like an email list and that would give you, uh, you know, a somewhat regular interval where I will just mail images, email images. You can save them to the phone and, and view the images. And then in addition to that, if you want to buy these glass plates, they will be available as well. So maybe once a quarter or something, I'll do a series of these glass plates. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll be available for sale too. Part of that thinking is trying to wrestle control of my own work and being able to sell it directly to the audience that wants to see it which in this day and age is, you know, I've seen this with Lumiere already. That's kind of my working model. Um, you don't necessarily need representation or a gallery network or whatever to sell your work. I, th- I think there's avenues there where I can get this directly to the people that want it. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the thinking behind it. Um, you know, I'll create work and uh, I'd like the emails to be free. I'd like for people to just be able to sign up to that and you'll have to buy a viewer there are other viewers available you certainly wouldn't have to buy mine but um just to be able to drop something into somebody's email inbox that isn't junk that can be kind of treasured and sort of sat with i guess you know so you get this thing you get home you 
get out your viewer and you view it and you just get sucked into that world for a few minutes you know there's something kind of special about that being able to just deliver that to people's phones uh, with a very very low overhead no cost no social network no nothing Um, because these things don't work on Instagram you get this square format tiny screen low res like it's really tough to make them work Um, but if I just you know email you a file yeah you really can you know experience that that 3d image um so yeah that's kind of the thinking um like a two-strand model where we uh you know i can email these files to people um and then make these slides available as well so people can buy them because they really are they really are special but yeah a few more hurdles to get over before it's launched but it's uh yeah it's getting real close Um, cool that's exciting yeah i'm really excited about it it's very different as well for me it's completely different working process um it's liberating in some senses but then it's also quite restrictive like you can only shoot certain things in stereo certain things have to be certain distance away you got to get the cameras the right distance apart depending on what you're shooting most dslrs are pretty big so you can only get them so close together as well so there's some complexity there but um i think i thrive on that really uh i'm kind of a sucker for (laughs) obscure uh processes and punishing myself yeah cool so would you just recommend people go to your website then to look more into that yeah um i have uh adrianwhip.com is kind of helms everything there's a couple of weird projects on there that i've been uh involved with and then from there you can link to yeah lumia or the daydream society those are two separate websites um the daydream society is kind of a holding page right now there's not a whole lot going on there um, but I'm sort of flashing out what that's going to look like. So there's a little explanation of, you know, what this might look like. Um, I'm sure it'll take more twists and turns before it's ready to go. But um, and I can feel, I can sort of smell it on the breeze like it's getting close. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's uh, exciting. The, the last nail in the, the coffin of this was finding somebody that could print me um, slide film. So I could send them an image and they would put it onto slide film. So it has that resolution and that depth. Um, that you really can only get through film. Certainly, if you're talking about transparencies, there's no way to inkjet, you know, transparency anything with with any level of detail. It has yeah. to be a chemical process. But uh, yeah, it's not cheap um, at all. Uh, but I found a place that can that can make these things, and then basically I take those two negatives and sandwich it between a sheet of glass, and then on the back a piece of um, frosted glass to diffuse the light and then wrap it in a wooden frame and yeah they're very very cool little objects yeah uh, very different nice and if someone's visiting austin they're in austin they can come see you when at uh, justine's uh yeah we keep the studio behind a little french restaurant um called justine's who i'm eternally grateful for um hosting me for all these years um it's really the most magical place in austin <laughs> to get a steak or to uh yeah or to get a tin type photograph but uh yeah we keep it behind the scenes usually thursday through sunday um six to midnight six to eleven something like that i'd like to hire somebody in the next year so that um i can keep it open longer um, oh yeah because it's it's a pretty grueling uh late night kind of gig um, yeah it's definitely taken its toll on me in the past so yeah i'd like to be able to keep it open for a little bit longer so hopefully we'll have extended extended hours um by the end of the year oh nice Mm -hmm. and then trips too we always travel around so um instagram's a good way to keep posted on that um at lumia tintype uh if we travel yeah i put up put all our tour dates up on there wonderful well thank you so much for your time and everything that you said i really enjoyed this conversation yeah it's been a good one yeah cool thanks you're welcome 
Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Take care.